with Trump no longer on the scene, media attention is going to become focused on this sort of scandal and a lot of politicians who've got away with coasting over the last four years need to watch out. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gothorp. Coronavirus is continuing to sweep over the United States. Over the last week, the country has experienced its 500,000th death from the disease. The US now accounts for something like 20% of all global deaths from coronavirus, despite only having 4% of the world's population. And at the same time, the country's been dealing with another disaster. A colossal winter storm has blanketed the country from Ohio down to Texas. Dozens of people have died, and millions have been left without access to power, food, or water. In this episode, I'm going to explore the impact that this time of plague and disaster has had on the three of the largest states in America, California, New York, and Texas. Each of these states is a global brand who's recognized around the world, but each has been struggling over the past year, and their politics seems to be in flux in a way that it hasn't been at all in recent decades. Each of these stories also shows us how that even though Trump may no longer be dominating the country's news media, we're still reckoning with how the man to whom no scandal ever seems to stick has transformed the way that we reckon with political scandal and embarrassment in America. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you do, please remember to subscribe and tell a friend about America Explained. The situation in Texas has really been dominating news around the world even over the last week, and it's easy to see why. This state, which all over the world is a symbol of self-reliance and actually arrogance as well, has been really struggling. So a severe winter storm hit almost all of Texas simultaneously, and as a result, the state experienced what some are predicting is going to be the costliest power outage in human history. Millions of people were left without any power, as demand surged and natural gas facilities stopped working as they froze over. And many residents were left without water as pipes burst and water treatment plants failed. I even read about one guy who had relied on getting water from a well for his entire life and his well had frozen over so he had no access to, to clean water. When all this is done, you know, in a state that's really, really not used to winter conditions, we're looking at a really high death toll especially because also hospitals across the state have been shut shutting down and also been left without power and water. The culprit for what's happened in Texas has basically been an enormous underinvestment over decades in the type of infrastructure which is routinely used in colder states to protect against this sort of winter storm. So Texas has been ruled by conservative Republicans for decades, a political group who have very close ties to fossil fuels, who have a dislike of government regulation. You know, they have this belief that people should basically be self-reliant and that it's not up to the government to solve problems for people. One of the really bizarre ways that this expresses itself is that the constitution of Texas actually limits how long the Texas state legislature is allowed to meet for. So it's not legal under the state constitution for the Texas legislature for, to meet for longer than 140 days at a time. And it also only meets every other year. And this is basically, you know, based on the idea that government is the source of problems. So we want to limit the extent to which the government can come together and pass new laws and pass new regulations because we think that people should be left to themselves. So an article in the Washington Post the other day really summed up this attitude. It said, political leaders in Texas pride 
is what they see as the state's self-reliance, its go-it-alone ethos, and its cheap power, all of which they regard as related. Now, one of the ways that they've chosen to express this go-it-alone ethos in recent years has been to decouple their power grid from the rest of the country. Um, this has had a couple of consequences, so usually power grids are connected with nearby power grids. That means if there's a failure in one of them, then they can get energy from another. And that's a way of avoiding failures in one grid. So as an example of this, uh, the grid of the UK is currently being linked to that of Norway by this huge undersea cable to um, make both grids more resilient. Now, Texas doesn't have to go via an ocean to be linked to another power grid. There are two main power grids in the US, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast, and Texas cut themselves off from this. So they've not been able to get access to energy from other places to deal with this problem they've had. Now, the reason they did this was because they wanted to avoid federal regulation. So basically, if they cut themselves off from the main power grids in the US, they were basically allowed to run things themselves. Now, that might have made sense if they'd then run things well or um, created a resilient grid, but that's not what they did. Instead, they made the decision that in Texas, they were not going to do what's really common in the rest of the country, which is to build in the capacity to deal with outages. So the other power grids in the US have a 15% margin of error. So basically they can cope with a loss of 15% of capacity or kind of like a surge in demand that, that goes 15% over normal. Texas chose not to do this and that meant that their energy costs were low because they weren't paying for this extra capacity, but it also left them horrifically exposed to this kind of crisis. And it's also not like this crisis came as a surprise, actually. So Texas has previously suffered big blackouts caused by major storms. There was one in 1989 and another in 2011. And in the aftermath of both, a lot of people said, well, you know, whoa, we've got to deal with this problem, but no action was taken or action wasn't taken that was anything like what was needed to address the problem. What's been really incredible to see this time around is how Texas politicians have responded to this and how they've really taken a big, big page out of Trump's playbook. First, there was Senator Ted Cruz, who was photographed just as the disaster was starting, hopping on a plane to the Mexican resort town of Cancun to get away from the carnage in the state he was supposed to represent. This only became public knowledge because someone snapped a photo of him at the airport and then put it on Twitter. And then some kind of Twitter detectives um, found out some more information. They managed to track down the, the list of people who'd been due for an upgrade on the flight and saw Te Ted Cruz's name on it. Cruz then blamed his daughters when this became public, who he said basically had been whining at him to get away because they were sick of the situation back in Texas. So he decided to take them to Cancun. So really, really not cover himself with glory and he just eventually had to back down and apologize. Then there was Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott is the guy who ultimately is responsible for what happens on the Texas power grid. He's governor of the state, but he decided not to accept responsibility and rather to blame environmentalists who he says have pushed a radical agenda of renewable energy onto Texas. And then along with right-wing media and basically every other Texas Republican there on down, he claimed that it was a failure of wind power that caused this catastrophe in Texas and implied that it was democratic, by which I mean democratic party ideas like the Green New Deal that had caused this problem. Now, there's a few problems with this line of argument, starting with the fact that it's total bull**. 
profit. Wind accounts for a very small proportion of Texas's overall power output, about 8% is the figure that I usually see. And it was failures with fossil fuels that caused these problems in the state. And besides, the idea that radical environmentalists are the one who've been running Texas is completely ludicrous. It's conservative Republicans with strong links to the fossil fuel industry, people like Abbott and Cruz, who have been representing the state for decades. What we're seeing here is a very, very Trumpian approach to scandal. First, a complete denial of reality, then an attempt to construct an alternative reality, and finally, just attacking your opponents for the thing which is actually your fault. You know, not taking responsibility or even accepting the existence of the reality in which you're the one who's made a mistake, but basically projecting what you've done wrong onto your opponents. Will this work? Well, I think it actually kind of might. Democrats have had their eyes on Texas for a long time now, hoping that demographic change is eventually going to make the state winnable for them in elections. So the basic idea here, which I've talked about in a previous podcast, is that Hispanics tend to vote for Democrats and the population of Texas is over time becoming more Hispanic. So basically, this should mean that eventually Democrats can win the state. Democrats are now showing some signs that they're jumping at the opportunity to show Texans that there's some alternative way of being governed, which might work better for them, and hopefully accelerate this process. And one of the most interesting things that happened is that the House member, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has jumped into action, raising $3 million for relief efforts, and then going to the state to distribute it. So it's kind of this, you know, uh, very telling split-screen image that Ted Cruz is jetting out of Texas and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a representative from New York City, is jetting into Texas to help. Joe Biden is also hoping to spend a huge amount of money to upgrade America's infrastructure, and this is money which Texas dearly needs and which it might now be possible to win support for among Texans after this storm. On the other hand, I'm not really sure that this is going to add up to doing much more than denting Republican popularity in Texas. I'm not sure it's going to fundamentally challenge the grip that they have on the state in the short term. Trump has given Republicans a playbook which works really, really well in deep red America. This combination of factual inaccuracy and strong attacks on your opponents gets really amplified by conservative media and and really creates a kind of different bubble of reality that many people live in. And I just don't see enough voters in Texas kind of moving away from this this way of viewing things uh, to make a big difference. On the other hand, I think Ocasio-Cortez has been really smart and I don't always agree with everything she does, you know, in terms of political strategy, at least. But engaging in this sort of community building is really helpful. It's the sort of thing that helped Democrats flip Georgia at the last election, something that I talked about on a previous episode. So this is certainly helpful for Democrats. I think it's an opportunity for them to build links with some communities in Texas, and particularly, I think, to convince poorer white voters and voters of color that they have their back. But I also don't think that this kind of, you know, means that Texas is going to be in play necessarily in the 2024 presidential election. But what it might help Democrats do is really win some seats in the House of Representatives at the midterms in 2022. None of this is helpful for Republicans, definitely. And this can only kind of make Democrats feel better about the possibility that they have of taking the state sometime this decade. 
But in the meanwhile, the tragic thing is, politics aside, that millions of Texans are left living under this state government, under representatives, that have really shown during this crisis that they don't give a damn about them. They don't even care to hang around while people are dying, freezing to death in their own homes in the state. And they don't care about being honest with people about why this has happened. And that's something that we can only lament until one day the situation changes. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. to shift attention to the other end of the country and the other end of the political spectrum as well to New York. New York City was the epicenter of America's coronavirus outbreak last spring and for much of the pandemic it's been the state that had the most deaths, just recently been overtaken by California in the official count. And this status as kind of an early epicenter of, of the disease in the country meant that the response of New York State was really fiercely debated in the rest of the country. So as the, as the rest of the country was kind of wondering what they were going to do when the virus hit them, they looked to New York to see how things were being handled there. And then, you know, it became kind of a political football with people on the right been very, very critical of New York's handling of the virus, and people on the left been very defensive about how well New York was doing. The figure that towered over this whole debate was Andrew Cuomo, the Democratic governor of New York State, who's now in his third term. So when we think about New York, you think, of course, of New York City, and it has the mayor, Bill de Blasio. But of course, it's easy to forget that New York City is in New York State. So the top elected official in New York uh, as a state is Andrew Cuomo. He's actually very often been involved in disagreements with Bill de Blasio, who's a more progressive Democrat, who's the mayor of New York City. But anyway, Cuomo's popularity really skyrocketed in the early weeks of the pandemic. Some headlines were saying that he's now the most popular politician in America. And some Democrats who were nervous about Joe Biden. So, you know, this is kind of like last March, last April, when it was just becoming clear that Biden would be the Democratic nominee for president. Some people who were really worried about whether Biden was going to be good enough to beat Trump were saying, wow, we should actually take Cuomo and put him on the top of the ticket. So get rid of Biden really ride this wave of popularity that Andrew Cuomo has because he seems to be handling coronavirus so well. And Cuomo even went so far, and I think this is when he jinxed himself, but he even went so far to write a book about how well he'd handled the pandemic, and it was titled American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. And this book became a bestseller. So, you know, Cuomo mania was kind of this thing that was going on last spring, but then over the last couple of months, everything has, seems to have become crashing down to earth again. Over the last month, it emerged that New York State deliberately undercounted and then so misreported the number of people who died from coronavirus within nursing homes in the state. This followed an earlier controversial and really kind of a weird decision early last year in which the state forced nursing homes to admit patients who had had the coronavirus and even barred the testing of new patients in nursing homes to see whether they currently had it or not. An awful lot of New York residents died in nursing homes 
know, as happened everywhere in the country and indeed in the world, in nursing homes, you have this population that's very, very vulnerable to the virus. People who tend to be older, people who have um, underlying health conditions, people who are in close contact with one another all the time. So it's been a, you know, a real problem to keep the virus out of nursing homes. And people were really puzzled by the, these policies they had in New York. So a lot of New York residents died in nursing homes, and we don't actually know how many because of this deliberate underreporting by the Cuomo administration. And this, uh, you know, the, the revelation that this decision to deliberately undercount was purposeful has come as a huge shock. And the FBI are now investigating the Cuomo administration to look into this matter. Now, this development has come as less of a surprise to the people, and they did exist, who dissented from this really kind of adoring view of Cuomo that had been really uh, mainstream in, in the country throughout last year particularly more left-wing Democrats in New York, who's who have often had clashes with the Cuomo administration over progressive policies in New York City. And they point out that Cuomo has long been an autocrat and autocratic and arrogant figure, and they often compare him to Trump. Now, there's this really long history in the United States of corruption and law-breaking in state politics, and of very strong personalities who established their dominance at the state level. One way of understanding Trump is actually that he took a way of doing politics that had been previously quite common at the state level in American government and took it to the federal level. It's much easier to get away with abuses of power at the state level because institutions tend to be weaker, there's much less oversight, and there's much less media attention. So it's not always as, as clear exactly what is going on and there aren't strong law enforcement institutions, independent law enforcement institutions that can break up corruption at the state level so easily. Probably the best example of, of a governor who's acted this way in recent history is Huey Long, who was the governor of Louisiana before World War II. Long makes Trump look, look like a saint. The guy kidnapped journalists. He turned the state legislature into a kind of rubber stamp that just did anything that he wanted. He dismissed most of the bureaucrats in the state government and then appointed his own people in their place and then would require people who worked for the state of Louisiana to give a certain bit of their salary every month towards his re-election campaign. It, all of this stuff he did, you know, led to what many historians have called the first dictatorship on American soil. But as I say, he was just a really extreme example of the, of the shady behavior that we see much more often at the state level in American politics. New York politics has never been quite as bad as Louisiana in the 1930s, but it has been plagued by corruption and abuses of power in the past. And Cuomo has actually had his own share of controversy. So one example of this that he, is that he abruptly shut down an investigation into corruption in New York, which was getting too close to his allies. And just a few days ago, he supposedly rang up a Democratic state lawmaker in New York and screamed at this person that he was going to destroy him and damage his career. So opponents say that this sort of bullying behavior is something that Cuomo actually does all of the time. This kind of scandal is 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 a very old one, an old, very old type of scandal in American politics, but it's something we haven't really been paying too much attention to while Trump was around. You know, and last year, Donald Trump's handling of the coronavirus was, was so bad and so kind of 
publicly terrible. You know, if you think about things like him suggesting that people should inject bleach into their lungs, there was an awful lot of reluctance among Democrats in the media to criticize figures like Cuomo, not only because everyone looked great compared to Trump, but also because there was this reluctance to give Trump an opening for his own abuses of power, which he often targeted against Democrats. No one wanted to give Trump an excuse to investigate or attack New York, knowing he couldn't be trusted to do so responsibly. But now Trump is gone, it's much harder for other politicians to hide behind these excuses. And so, you know, the, the ultimate effect of this on New York politics is perhaps not going to be too consequential. New, New York is a blue state, it's definitely not going to vote for a Republican anytime soon. But it does mean that there's a rocky road ahead for politicians like Cuomo. Uh, Cuomo has to run for re-election in 2022. He's probably going to face a progressive primary challenger. And he might not be that challenger this time around. And he doesn't have Trump to hide behind anymore in order to make himself look better or at least acceptable. So this one's a real reminder of us to avoid imposing a black and white understanding of political morality on red and blue America. And also to understand that going forward with Trump no longer on the scene, media attention is going to become focused on this sort of scandal and a lot of politicians who've got away with coasting over the last four years need to watch out. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. Finally, I want to talk about the Sunshine State, my favorite state, California. So California is currently the state with the highest death count from coronavirus in the nation, and State Governor Gavin Newsom is facing really strong criticism at home at the moment. His critics have started a recall effort, which means that if they can gather enough signatures, they can force a special election to take place in which Newsom might be replaced. The last time this happened was in 2003, when voters uh, recalled and then got rid of Democrat Davis, and they replaced him with Arnold Schwarzenegger of all people. So this is how Schwarzenegger became governor of California through this mechanism. So I can only imagine right now that there are some actors in Hollywood really working on polishing up their resumes. How does Governor Oprah Winfrey sound? Because that's something that people have actually talked about. Newsom is in trouble for a few reasons. This recall effort started as kind of a joke with California Republicans linking up with pretty much anyone they could find, including some really dodgy organizations who were linked to QAnon and the Proud Boys in order to gather signatures for the recall effort. But it's recently gone much more mainstream, bringing together citizens who feel that the state hasn't done enough to control the virus, and also those who feel that it's done too much, harming small businesses. So it's a combination of people who feel that the, the state has overreached and it's harmed people liberties, and also those who think that the state just hasn't done enough to protect people from coronavirus. There's also been a great deal of anger over failures in dispensing unemployment benefits in California with the, the automated system that's supposed to give people their unemployment insurance not working very well and leaving a lot of people without money. But things really got bad for Newsom when it emerged a few months ago that he'd attended a dinner at a restaurant in Napa Valley despite guidelines in the state which warned against socializing and eating indoors at restaurants. It didn't really didn't help that the restaurant called the French Laundry was super expensive. Now, I don't know what sort of laundry they serve in this place, but the meals can come to about $500 per person. 
and the wine bill for this meal was reportedly over $10,000. So this struck many people as really, really out of touch that Gavin Newsom having, you know, gone in front of cameras every day and talked about the importance of social distancing and wearing masks and not going to restaurants had gone and just splurged on this meal at the restaurant where, you know, people weren't observing coronavirus social distancing measures. I think that of all of the politicians I've discussed in this episode, though, Newsom is the one that's most likely to be in trouble, and that's why it's interesting to talk about him. The Republican Party is basically non-existent in California. Um, in the 1990s, Republicans just completely lost the, you know, the grip or any grip that they had on the state. That's the last time that Republicans were routinely winning elections, you know, like senator or governor, these kinds of races in, in California. And the Republican Party in the state responded to this loss of power and, and this kind of societal change that was rejecting them, not by becoming more moderate and trying to appeal to more voters, but they actually ended up getting much, much more extreme. We actually see the same thing happening in state Republican parties over the last couple of months in the aftermath of Donald Trump's loss in the election. So you might think that after Trump lost so badly in the previous election, Republicans in, in states that he lost, so places like Arizona, which just voted for a Democrat for the first time in, in many years, you might think that the Republicans in these states would think, okay, maybe we need to do something different, maybe we need to become more moderate and try and win back some of these Democratic voters, but what's actually happened is, is the opposite, that these parties have become really obsessed with purity and seeing themselves as under siege from a kind of, the kind of liberal hordes around them. And believed that the only thing that they can really do is keep the faith with conservatism as much as possible and sort of hope that eventually society will will come back round to their point of view. And it's contributed to this long period in the political wilderness that California Republicans have experienced since the 90s. But they did have this success with Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2003. One of the reasons for that was that even though Schwarzenegger ran as a Republican and he was a Republican, he was someone who attached himself to their brand. So he wasn't, you know, he didn't have a background as a Republican politician, right? He was a movie star. Many ways similar to Donald Trump. Someone who had an independent basis of fame and independent relationship with the public attaches themselves to the Republican brand and then manages to consolidate behind him both Republican voters, but also voters in the middle and independents and some Democrats who don't like the current incumbent and they know who this person is because, well, in Arnie's case, he was a movie star. Still cracks me up that Arnie was the governor of California and, and when he was, my wife was in college there. So her college diploma is signed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. How cool is that? But anyway, it won't be so cool for California Democrats if the Republicans manage to recruit someone who has this real star power behind them and run them against Newsom. So it's really important for Newsom to make sure that he handles the vaccination campaigns, reopening of the economy, you know, as we come out of coronavirus, or Newsom, I think, could be in real, real trouble. And then we could see a Republican governor of California, which, you know, is uh, something that we, we haven't thought possible for a long time. I think it's also interesting to, and just as a closing thought, to compare Newsom's scandal to the Texas energy scandal. It shows that there's this basic inequality that exists between the left and the right in scandals. 
Right-wing politicians who do wrong in the US can rely on a really sympathetic media to construct this kind of alternative reality which protects them. Whereas the left tends to be much, much more critical of its own side, something that Andrew Cuomo is experiencing as well. Newsom hasn't behaved as badly as many other politicians during the past year, and even though if you made me put money on it, I'd say the recall effort against him probably won't succeed, I think he's still arguably the one who faces the most serious threat. It's a reminder of how diverse America is at the state level, and how there are always all these different political stories happening down there that don't always jibe exactly with the national politics that we hear so much about in the news. Having Donald Trump around really tended to focus our attention just on him, but there's a whole nation of scandal and struggle to pay attention to. So remember to check back in with America Explained to keep you updated. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time. <laughs>